timing is everything. We can't always predict when that time is going to be, but the more opportunities you give yourself to expose yourself to different people in the business, you know, whether that, I don't care if that's a makeup artist, I don't care if that's a, a sound mixer, I don't care who that is, because at the end of the day, you will be able to say, oh yeah, I met so-and-so. Oh yeah, I, you know, I met this guy. He was doing, you know, he was doing grip. Yeah, he was really nice. So sometimes it may be you're not going to do the job that that's what your dream job you want to do. So it may be times where, and I tell people this, you're not doing camera. You're not even second AC, but maybe the production assistant. Great. Like, like if, if you have time and you put yourself out there, um, you know, volunteer to do it. Try to do it if, if you can, because um, you just never know who you're going to meet. It's, it's really, it's a quirky industry. And um, at any given moment, you can meet somebody that completely changes your career. Welcome back to this Industry Life podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Askell. And I'm your co-host, Anthony Wilson. And I'm your producer, Katie Galenoble. Uh, this week, we have Maddie Moore, who is a ta- very talented filmmaker, writer, executive producer. Um, she's got a long list of credits. So, hello, Maddie. How are you doing? We're doing good. How are you? Uh, frustrated. Yeah, frustrated, really. What's but, going um, on? Oh, gosh. Just, I, just lots of stuff, you know. A lot of stuff I want to do, we can't do right now, so we'll have to wait and... You know, uh, Europe is really, I, I'm really, I'm going to be very interested to see what happens to the film industry, though, in Europe mm. with all these lockdowns as of tonight. It's really, I, I feel really quite, quite awful for all these production houses over there. Oh, they're closing everything down again. Yeah, they locked down France and Germany. Mm. So if you can, you can imagine some of these other, you know, whether you're an independent or whatever, uh, bigger studio, it's, it's really quite devastating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess we'll just start off the podcast by asking you how you kind of started in the film industry. Oh, gosh. So actually, it was um, in terms of the producing and, and I would say entertainment industry or, or film industry actually was by way of television. So back when I was going through school, I actually was able to get an internship at a very small public television station. And I was actually thinking about this, knowing that I was going to be doing this podcast. So we did a lot of children's broadcasting. You know, we would have, of course, everybody, like every public television station, we would, you know, broadcast Sesame Street and, and lots of children's programming. Um, but then we were doing a lot of local programming that we thought was just very, very interesting and cutting edge at the time. So we had... Um, we also had a lot of um, interesting shows we were doing. I think probably we were one of the first sp- all Spanish speaking um, talk shows. I mean, I'm going back some years, which was really pretty extraordinary. And actually the show is still going on now on some pro- television stations. So cool. <laughs> you know, it, was kind of, it was very neat. I mean, I'm going back probably about, you know, 20 years, but uh, it was interesting that this particular station had really come up with some very interesting ideas. I mean, because we had some, we had no budget, right? We had the old tube cameras for our television talk shows that, you know, it was like driving an 18 wheeler. It was just really, <laughs> it was really <laughs> extraordinary. 
And so, you know, I started there. And at the time that I started, I had to learn how to do the camera. I had to learn what a white balance was. I had to, you know, at back in the day, the mics, you know, you'd put them together. And I remember some of the staff not doing the audio right. They were like crawling behind the set, old school style, putting it back together. It was just really, but you actually got to learn your craft. So that, that was a great way because it was very hands-on. You had to learn a little bit of everything. We didn't have the staff to support, you know, just a camera person or a DP or and just an audio tech. So we had to learn a little bit of everything. Um, I was thinking how really extraordinary that I ended up doing kind of what I, I don't want to call it a political show. We'll get into that. I, I call it now kind of a show about Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And, and lobbying. But um, my first show they allowed me to produce was a show at 11 p.m. on Saturday nights, that was in Mandarin. Wow. <laughs> Nobody wow. spoke. And then actually we would get a lot of the um, communist government people calling with obscenities in Mandarin. So we never knew like what, to, I mean, nobody spoke Mandarin, the camera people, the audio, the direct, I mean, none of us spoke Mandarin. So, you know, we'd have this old fashioned delay and things like that. And it was actually a live call-in show, which was even more funny when I look back on this. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it was really extraordinary. So that's how I kind of got my start in producing was just very basic public television, getting an internship, started producing, produced some of the political debates, you know, locally. And, um, and then from there, what happened was that I met a director that was directing a lot of the political talk shows at, at CNBC at the time. And they needed a string producer. Um, they were also doing kind of documentaries and he was also working for National Geographic at the time too as a freelancer and they needed somebody. So um, that was kind of the start in terms of network. And that was really great for me. It was really interesting, um, not just on, on the creative side with you know documentary filmmaking from National Geographic, but also just in the perspective of the media and, and how things that we see on a regular basis that you know haven't changed really. I mean, obviously what's changed is social media. So you get your news faster, you get information faster. But that was a really great um, lesson for me. It was very interesting because we had to work so fast. We did three live shows a night. And um, you know, the turnaround was just really very fast. So um, that taught me a lot about meeting deadlines. It taught a lot about structure in, in production. And, um, and then from there, I, uh, when a lot of these shows were migrating and National Geographic was becoming, you know, Animal Planet was starting and Discovery Channel was starting and things like that, I was able to start freelancing there and then really started, um, you know, working on productions because at the time in Washington, D.C., there were a lot of big budget films going like Clear and Present Danger, you know, anything that had a Washington, D.C. theme, obviously, you know, filmed in D.C. So working on a lot of those shows as well, like Forrest Gump, um, the the mall scene was actually really interesting because that was one of the first times they had used. I know it's like everybody's like, oh, my God, you must be so old. But that was one of the first times they used computer generated. Um, images for you know the crowd scene nice uh, the lake and that and that scene so actually you know we were all dressed up everybody was dressed up as hippies and things like that and just you know rotating everybody out mm-hmm. and and you know, filming 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 but obviously there wasn't people from the lincoln memorial you know to the mall that was um but actually then that at the time was considered oh wow that was like really you know that was really amazing that was really technologically advanced 
-hmm. So from there, it was just a lot of networking. And I ended up because of two meeting so many people internationally in DC, I ended up doing a lot of non-English content. So somebody asked me the other day, you know, what I've when I've seen something you worked on or produced or things like that, I was like, well, maybe if you speak Kurdish and saw it <laughs> in the Middle East. But I do like doing different films like that because they have they have such an interesting audience. And I mm. and I think too, a lot of people think, you know, we have the American market, which obviously does very well globally. You know, everybody wants to see the next American blockbuster. But in terms of, you know, films that have an ability to be distributed, and of course that's changing now because of the streaming platforms, um, there really is, there's really a great market because you're seeing this with Netflix. Netflix is picking up so many foreign content right now and dubbing. And, um, you know, that's very interesting to see the different, different things that we probably never would have been able to see. Yeah. That's how it started yeah, I think uh, at the beginning of quarantine, I saw a statistic that they had 400 films. Netflix had 400 films in post-production at the time of quarantine. Yeah. yeah. That's not, and that's probably not all English language either. So mm -hmm. that's, that's globally, if you can imagine. So, you know, a lot of people in the business too are really becoming expert in, in, in terms of uh, dubbing and things like that in different languages. All you have to do is look at what the production posts are, you know, Mandarin, you know, it, it, all of these other things. Um, so I think, you know, I think it's been, these platforms have been great because we're getting content we never would have ordinarily seen. And I think for filmmakers too, it's giving them such a wider audience to appreciate the work, you know, large and small. The Dream, A Dream Before Dying, the one, the film that you executive produced in Kurdistan, was that your first ever film that you executive produced? That was actually, and, and it was, it was, <laughs> It, it was actually, it migrated from actually having a role of starting and helping start a 24-7, which, which started out being supposed to be a 24-7 news channel, which actually the news channel is still up and running. At the time I was, I was hired because they kind of wanted to be the CNN of the Middle East. It was a very ambitious project. They had built this huge, huge studio um, they wanted it in five languages. I mean, if you can imagine, of course, there's CNN International, but can you imagine having a studio that's launching that wants Kurdish, Arabic, Farsi, Turkish, German? That's remarkable. And, of course, English. I forgot English because they wanted a Washington, D.C. bureau. And I'm looking at this. I'm like, my gosh, can you imagine? So and then, of course, with that, they were like, well, we really want we need content. Like, how do we get content? How do we? How do we after, and of course, at the time it was really interesting because I said, do you have programming? And they gave, God bless them, they gave me this big sheet of programming, which was basically Good Morning Kurdistan, which is like, good morning. <laughs> <laughs> good morning Kurdistan. And then it was a woman's view, which actually came mm. to pass, it became too controversial. Like, so they decided to cut it. So there was no women's view show. That was the talk show that was done. Um, but obviously they wanted to do a lot of documentaries and they wanted a lot of feature film original content. So a lot of the people from that experience, obviously I was able to meet and thus came this film. And this film took many, many years to make because it was obviously right in the middle of the insurgency going into Mosul with, um, with the Islamic state, mm -hmm. um, and it was obviously became very dangerous. And um, actually, after I saw some of the <laughs> dailies, the um, 
the the director and 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 by the way it's been interesting because over the last 10 years there really has been just like there's been this there has been a wave of you know Iranian filmmakers including some that have gone to Cannes and Venice Biennale and been very successful and won awards and many mm -hmm. who are you know in England or in LA now there's kind of been this wave of Kurdish filmmaking too and directors mm. um and anyway he during all of this time, you know, there's the beginning where there are all these explosives of the trucks and the demining de operations. And they said, oh, but that, we didn't have to pay extra for that because that actually happened. So obviously production stopped. And then I had a very minor release um, back in, in uh, 2018. And, um, and then actually did very, very well in the, in the circuit because People, if we remember, Girls in the Sun had come out about the Peshmerga and, and all of this with the women's issues in Middle East, and I had gone to Cannes and had done very well. Um, so yeah, it, it was an interesting experience. And obviously, if you wanna go into doing something like this in the beginning, it's better not to have the challenges we did. Um, and while I would, you know, say I've, you know, I would say loosely EP'd other things, but much smaller, but you know, nothing that I would consider, yeah, you really have to, oversee all of these you know aspects of budget above the line below the line mm -hmm. actors all of these things so yeah i i would have it would have been good to have something less challenging <laughs> but, um so but you know i i'm really proud of the film and it is getting a distributor and um you know at the end of the day this is this is you know a lot of things that have been in the pipeline you know, have been put on hold and, and people are hard to reach. And, and also people are, you know, really looking at the theater situation globally mm -hmm. as to whether that's going to, you know, be an indicator. And I, I, I really, I sympathize with those because I think on the EP side and producing side, so much of content is obviously all about the contract negotiations. And you see that going on, what's gonna happen with Broadway now and SAG-AFTRA and whether that's Actors' Equity and whether that's you know a major motion picture that had a theatrical release in terms of residuals and royalties. There's so many other aspects of thinking about, do you, are you deciding to wait and do a theatrical release versus a streaming platform? Because the money completely changes. The contract completely changes. So um, that's gonna be very interesting to see how this, and I'm, I'm glad I'm not an EP for a major project like that because I can only imagine what the studios are sitting back and trying to figure out what to do and what is their best way forward for sure mm -hmm, for sure are you uh i've seen on your imdb that you have a horror feature film coming up uh would you like to elaborate on that i'm very excited about this although i have to say i, I had i did rewrite the beginning just um due to the situation we're in right now mm -hmm. um, um i am excited about this so um, it actually, the beginning takes place um, in American, American Revolution time around Princeton, New Jersey. There were some very important battles uh, with Washington coming up the Delaware in Princeton and around um, the, Hessian, uh, the Hessian army, the German army that was you know, hired by uh, the, the Brits. So it actually starts there. Um, obviously, I had other notions about what that scene would look like. <laughs> so I've... I've, um, it wasn't quite Christopher Nolan Dunkirk, but it was, you know, it, it was a little bit more elaborate than what I've rewritten. Um, so I, I'm excited about that. And, and um, I'm not going to talk about what kind of spirit, but um, obviously there's, there's a little girl that um, because of you know, family ties to the American Revolution that, um, you know, ends up, ends up being in 
the protagonist in this. Um, for me, I think one of the things about this film is first I've decided I really want to shoot in 35. Nice. Not that I don't love, I, I actually, during this lockdown, I've been playing with a lot of different equipment and like different graphics cards and just kind of figuring out because, you know, speed is important, content creating is important. I've, I've been of the notion anyway that those who can create content the fastest is going to be who wins this, this game mm -hmm. right now in the next two years. Um, but for me, the, yeah, the horror film was, was very much um, a personal experience. I did spend quite a bit of time around the Princeton area about uh, 15 years ago. And um, I would say that some of the people loosely sort of in situations were obviously inspired by, by things that were, you know, happening. Um, I would say too, that it, while, while it starts more historical, it, the style and, and, and the look of the film, I, I've been very careful that I really didn't want to peg a time. Mm -hmm. And, and that's something that in terms of a classic style, I really didn't want to say, Oh, okay. Cause so many scripts that I read too, that people, like, I can say, Oh, okay. This was like, this was, this would have been Mel, you know, Mel Gibson would have been in this film. This was like a 1998 film. Cause you can just, <laughs> know, you know what I mean? You can just tell by reading a script sometimes um, when it was placed. So for me, I, I really wanted to, um, a timelessness to it. Um, I would say too, for people who have read it, they've said, well, it's not really like Halloween. It's more Rosemary's Baby. Oh so it's my much God. That's people. one of my favorite films. That's incredible. And, and I've been doing a lot of research too, in terms of kind of fine tuning it. Um, in terms of, I've morally been wrestling about using child actors, to be very honest with mm -hmm. you. And, and I have because um, I was thinking, you know, does it really matter? in terms of being under 18 or the where, I mean, obviously starting out as a child is one thing, but getting into the more complicated parts of the, of the script. And I really, you know, I've been reading a lot about how directors have handled in horror films, um, directing child actors in that. And I think, um, because so many of these kids have problems afterwards, actually, <laughs> as yeah. we know, I mean, yeah. even, you know, I mean, such extraordinary performances like Linda Blair and The Exorcist, but I mean, this was, it was really so damaging in terms of the publicity she got from the film afterwards. And so I, I actually been reading a lot recently on John Moore and, and the directing of the remake of The Omen, which was very interesting with Julia Stiles because he made the choice not to tell the lead actor, Damien. They didn't tell the little boy anything about the film. Mm. And I thought that was a really interesting choice because I think it maybe he it made it so much more eerie and detached emotionally. I think that perhaps, you know, maybe he felt as a director that if he explained, oh, okay, now it's time for you to hate mummy and be scary, you know, that mm -hmm. it would have been a performance that would have lacked a lot of nuisance, a nuance that that you can see with this with this little boy. So I've been reading a lot about that and I, I haven't quite resolved that yet in terms of the age where we end up in terms of the most of the action in the film yet. So, and, and, and I think too, this time as well, it's, um, you know, you, you worry about your cast and crew and, and, and dealing with all of the other issues you have to with having a child on the set. I think that, I think for me, I'm, I, I'm not quite there that I would think. So I, I'm excited about the film. Um, I was hoping to start in Christmas, which I don't think is gonna happen, um, but, but that's okay because I think, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of groundwork that can be done anyway, so.
just going back, um, that all sounds really cool, by the way. Um, but uh, you said something about those who create content the fastest um, have like an upper edge in the next two years or something. I just wanted to like have you elaborate on that more. Just what what you meant by that? Yeah. So no, of course not. I I think that the more I think you were going to find where productions are scaling down a lot, and I think that's been one of the controversies, particularly. And dealing with obviously SAG after or Directors Guild and things is, you know, in terms of social distancing and providing a safe set, you may have a, a hundred person, 150 person crew that now is going to be scaled down to 50 or 75. Mm-hmm. I see a people having to wear multiple hats. And I see productions having people to be like, if you're a COVID safety person and you can do some grip and you can, you know, you can do whatever, um, I think that you're going to have people that are gonna be able to have to do multiple tasks. Mm. I also think that because there's gonna be such a restriction in terms of not only the studios, but in terms of location filming, and that's something that we're gonna have, we can't as filmmakers control what a federal, state or local ordinance tells us we can do and what we can't do. So therefore you have to think, okay, how can I get this done? What's the cleanest way I can get this done? What are the tools and technology I can use? And maybe that's having to re, rewrite the script. Maybe that's having to be, you know, really thinking out of the box. I think that this time we're going to see some just outrageously creative productions. I think that this has forced the situation where it's not going to be well. And you know what? If you have the money to have all the technology in the world and do film compositing, that's great. But most independents don't have that kind of budget to do it. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you're going to have to figure out what else to do. So I was, I haven't, I don't know a lot about this film, but for instance, Barry Levinson has, has a film that he shot during quarantine, uh, apparently around Santa Barbara. And it was one house, it was one location. And, you know, actors were quarantined and that was it. It was just mm-hmm. one place. I know nothing about the film. I haven't really read enough about it, but but that's what I mean by that is that we're not going to be able to just say, oh, well, you know, maybe in two months I'm going to get this permit. And then once I get the permit, then I'm going to hire all this local crew. And then when that happens, because to be very honest with you, I mean, it wasn't until September that the LA commission was in, in you know, permit or film LA was even giving out permits again. And I remember calling them in, in July and August and they were so unsure. They were like, you know, we're not planning. We don't think right now if the situation doesn't change, we're not gonna give any permits out in LA at all. So that's pretty, that's, you know, that's pretty, um, having to rely on something like that and for a filmmaker, I, I really ha- has changed a lot with the way I have been thinking and things that I've been doing during this time, in terms of getting my own light kits, playing around with this. I have green screen. I've got, I've souped up my, you know, my, my desktop, you know, with, with, you know, different editing gear, all of these other things to make sure that I'm not going to be stuck in a situation where I can't maneuver. So when I say he who can create content the fastest, I don't think it's so much about losing quality just to hurry up and rush things out. But I do yeah. think that they're going to be rethinking of what production is mm-hmm. for certain. You know, if you're not a big studio and, you know, you don't have a liability policy right now under COVID and you're trying to find your way to, you know, comply with all of these things, that makes it much, much more difficult. I think that segues perfectly into King of K Street because all the things that you're just talking about, you're now dealing with King of K Street. 
Yes. Um, but I guess to start off that, we should, I guess, would you like to talk about King K Street, um, what it is, and... So, um, King of K Street, loosely based on <laughs> my time in D.C. in the media and lobbying um, and covering all of these things in my early days in Washington, um, was really kind of a farcical romp of the outrageous things that actually happen in Washington to get things done that people don't really realize. And, you know, we're going through extraordinary times right now. And yes, it, it's it's not funny. However, this is not a problem that's just surfaced five years ago for, I mean, this has been 20 years of this kind of, you know, what I call this cyclical, you know, going into Congress, going out to Congress, worldwide worldwide interest, all of these things. So, mm-hmm. you know, the game doesn't change. The game got bigger, but it didn't change. This has been the same shtick for 25, 30, 40, <laughs> 50 years. So um, it really started out as a pilot. Um, and I, I thought really right now, um, like a couple of years ago, that really maybe was, was better cut up in terms of an audience's entertainment um, attention span too. It would be better as vin- you know more vignette style, 22 minute. Um, that maybe even, depending on where it ends up, that could even be lessened in terms of um, uh, minutes. But um, it was you know a guy whose band gets washed up and like everybody else in the world, sometimes in their life has to move in with their parents and they can't find a job, so they end up you know in daddy's firm, um, and uh, which is probably a lot of people right now and 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 has you know with the situation being so uncertain. Um, and so, you know, he kind of a fish out of water finds his way, but you know, along that, I really wanted to lace in things where I would have the audience say, does that really, is that really how it works? Is it that outrageous that these things happen? So I have to tell you, I, you know, I, when we started filming after some delay, um, the last day of filming was March 1st of this year, which is really interesting because Mm -hmm was before the lockdown, which occurred March 16th, right? And, and most of the country, but particularly Los Angeles, California. And somebody was looking at the dailies and the rough cut and they said, oh my gosh, this is like the Baba Vanya and Nostradamus of shows. They were like, the stuff that was in it, you guys wrote a year ago. And I said, no, I said, it was really, it's, it's been interesting for me to sit back because I thought, you know, maybe I need to edit some of this. Maybe we need to reshoot part of it. And then I thought, no, you know, for me, this parts of this this pilot now is is kind of a time capsule uh, prior to March 16th. I think still funny, still hilarious, um, more satirical, right? And um, and I think even more meaningful as as we move forward. And um, I think actually it worked out that we didn't get to be finished because I really think that right now the climate is so serious in this country and around the world. I don't think that there would have been the appetite for it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think frankly that we'll, we'll get it finished. I'm sure we'll get it finished by the, the three pilot episodes by, by end of February, but it's gonna be scaled down. And obviously we know the things that we need to do and they're, you know, we're, it's going to be like everybody else. Like I've talked to some agents and they're like, I know this will be the last time over a 40 year career that I will be going on the set to visit my client. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. And I mean, these are guys that were on sitcoms like Home Improvement and things like that. And they're like, you know, I know that you're not going to have, you know, agents are going to be in their attorneys hanging around with their clients on the set anymore. It's just not going to happen. So, yeah, we'll work differently. And um, 
you know, it'll be streamlined and, and hopefully at that time, you know, we'll be able to shoot outside <laughs> at all, all of these things, which I'm sure will be fine. But yeah, I mean, it's, we, we, we finished a good chunk of it and um, I'm, I'm really happy with what we have. So, so happy. And um, I kind of had what I call my own town hall test trial with some of the rough cut with people <laughs> from different, different political parties, just all of these things. And they were like, you know, we like it because it's, the, it's just like, it's just funny. It's not saying, oh, we're trying to prove a point. The only point we're trying to prove is, yeah, things are really screwed up and it continues to be. So maybe when you read the newspaper and you see something going on, you can say, huh, did that really happen? Or is there some other agenda here going on? But, you know, we do it in a way that's, that's, um, you know, funny and, um, and, all, and satirical. So I, I'm really, I'm really happy. I'm really happy with what we have so far. And I, I hope it ends up on streaming. It's fine if it would end up on cable too, but you know, all of these things are changing every, I mean, every, all of these executives are sitting back and thinking, how do we do this? I did want to say one thing of what the timing with King of K Street, because what actually, I've been off social media on the show. I, like, I haven't done anything because the thing was that we had a wonderful piece of um, earned media, someone on in roll call, which is, you know, old standard Capitol Hill newspaper did this great piece about, you know, King of K Street maybe filling the void because there's there aren't any like political shows or Washington shows anymore. Veep is gone, House of Cards is gone, Scandal's gone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe this is a show that could fill the void and things like that. I put that post of that article on Facebook and we got banned. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> How does that work? We got banned because I put the roll call piece that a reporter, Clyde McGrady, wrote about our show. I put, and then we had another one from a major newspaper also. I put them up at a particularly roll call because it's considered you know, a political newspaper in DC. I, you can follow Clyde McGrady on Twitter. <laughs> sure, it'll be fine because he knows that we were banned on, in February on Facebook. Mm. I was like, what are you doing? I was like, I don't understand this. I didn't say anything. We didn't do anything. We just said, hey, we got some really good press about the show. Boom, shut down, like shut down. Put in my driver's license. I mean, you know, I was like, okay, I'll do a Zoom call, I'll do whatever, or, you know, this and that. Can you please unlock the account? All this stuff. <laughs> I was like, I didn't do, we didn't do anything. Like we didn't say anything. I just had a couple of actors. We had some really, you know, terrific actors. One guy who has been well-known in Call of Duty, the, the uh, game. Mm. Um, the other actress who was played Mary Madeline in Vice. So, I mean, there was nothing here controversial. <laughs> Politics and it's Facebook, just, I feel like, are just a weird... No, it's, just... It's, just as, it's just as well, because after this blows over, next week, the week after, then I can start posting things again about the show and some stills and things. But I was like, after that, I would forget it. Uh, let's just wait. <laughs> Since we're in lockdown anyway right now, we're not filming. Let's just wait. Yeah, for sure. Um, I remember when you were first talking about K Street to us, you mentioned Roger Stone and how you used to know Roger Stone. And did yes, that well, you know, everybody knows Roger in the media. And I have <laughs> to say, I haven't had any, you know, any, I haven't said hello to him. I haven't seen him. But, you know, at the time, you know, when you, when you work on these political shows, you obviously have lots of people that you, you know, you see all the time because they're waiting in the green room. You know, you have to have somebody on the, on one side or the other side and things of that sort. 
And, you know, I have to say, is a very colorful character. <laughs> yeah. None of the surprises me. But, but to be very honest with you, you know, he loves the media. He loves the attention. And he is quite good at it. I mean, he's quite, quite clever. He's quite manipulative. He's very good at it. And um, I actually, I actually, I, I, had, I had made some, some predictions over a couple of years ago, which I'm not going to say what they were, but I, you know, I, we kind of bet on gummy bears and other things. And then I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he's an interesting guy, but, you know, I think the world of politics too, this is for me, writing King of K Street, even though a character like him is not in it, there are many colorful characters and, and people because you have to be a very special personality to be in this world for a, a long time. You have to, I mean, it's a, it's a different type. You know, people say the same thing about the entertainment industry, that you have to be hungry for it, you have to want it. But, you know, it's interesting because there are a lot of people in LA and New York that end up in Washington hoping to have careers or like, you know, coming in on the coattails of somebody being elected it's a whole different ball game. They don't, they don't understand. Mm -hmm. It's about power and access. It's not always about money, maybe about money in elections, but it's, it's a different, it's a completely different ball game. And um, so, you know, he is a colorful character. That's for sure. And we have many of them on our show. So <laughs> I, um, I, I, it's been for me a real joy to, you know, write it. And I actually, I already have like the six other episodes written out, fleshed out. And that's incredible. Uh, I'm, I'm excited for it. And so, but I, I think also I wasn't putting pressure on ourselves, even though I want to get it in the, you know, finished that this wasn't going to be the end of the world if it wasn't done and released right now. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think, I think frankly, we've been able to sit back and I don't, you know, I I'll spend maybe a month not looking at the rough cut and then I'll go back again and I'll go back and look at the dailies, but that's been good for me because I can say, oh yeah, what happened to that performance? I'm not seeing this. This was not in this rough cut. And that was just so good. Like I, that needs to be back there. And, you know, we can go and we can, we can elongate that look, you know, whether it be a nasty look or something that's really comedic without losing the timing of the piece. Mm -hmm. So it forces you to also be disciplined in that and not lose performances, which, you know, we were so lucky we had amazing actors. Um, and I don't, I don't want to shortchange those performances either. So this is, this has not been a bad time. You know, I mean, I think we, I put myself in a very ambitious deadline. These things happened, but um, I think we'll get a, a superior product from it. So I, I'm, I'm good with that. When you were younger, did you always dream of working in politics or in the entertainment industry? Well, uh, well, so I, my father was, um, was a foreign service. He was a diplomat. And so of course he wanted me to go on to go to law school or medical school, mm -hmm. which neither I have no any interest in. Um, and, um, you know, I just, I've always loved creating. I, I was a ballet dancer when I was a, when I was a teenager, I've been very fortunate, um, in my, my, you know, the last 10 or 15 years, I've been able to get very involved in different arts organizations as well. I really like to see this kind of crossover of, you know, dance and, and theater and film. So, you know, I, I've been very, very lucky. And I think part of the reason why King of K was so interesting for me was because it is quite theatrical. Somebody said to me, oh my gosh, it's, it should be a musical. He goes, that's my biggest fear is it's gonna be a musical and we hate musicals. <laughs> but, I, um, but I think that, 
kind of the high, what I call kabuki drama in some of this and, and funniness and outrageousness, it, it is very theatrical. So, yeah, I did have a theater career and I had a, a you know, a dance career as well. Um, I always love the creative arts. So it, for me, it wouldn't matter if it's, I love film particularly because there's such, you know, for me, one of the things you want to leave is a lasting impression. And that is something that you are able to do that, you know, people walk out of the theater and it's something that's much more obviously emotional, but it's also very draining. I know a lot of actors that, you know, when they were talking about the lockdown now and, and um, you know, their contracts ending and things like that. And if you realize what the live performers make on a weekly basis, frankly, and, you know, six, seven days a week, these shows, it's so exhausting. And I obviously it's a very different emotional experience, I think both for the performer and for the audience. Um, so, you know, for me, I, I just, I like creating different projects. I, I, but, you know, obviously for me right now, it's, it's these projects and I'm happy about that. And I'm happy that we're going to be able to do these kind of things. And I'm, I'm also thinking about how I can incorporate other talent that I know into this mix because, um, I think that's something for me that I, you know, locally I see so many of our dancers now not being able to dance and it's really heartbreaking for me to see that. I actually was at a performance of our local symphony and was really quite astounding because, you know, they all had to have, because of the horn section, right, because of COVID, they all had to be wrapped in these cases with the microphones and it was really difficult, but, you know, I really commend them for making the effort to do it um because uh it was really joyful and it was really one of kind of i don't want to call them guinea pigs but they really this was kind of an experimental way of being able to bring music live music and you know symphony orchestra even on a small scale back to an audience so it was you know it was very emotional the other night it was just really like you know gosh these are these musicians that perform with the ballet they perform with the opera and they're not doing anything now and they're not certainly able to give the joy that they usually do creatively. So I kind of want to go back to how me and you first met. <laughs> I know a lot of filmmakers out there that are looking for investors and trying to figure out how to find investors. And I was just curious how you actually came across and found me. Yeah. So, um, you know, this is not something that was new for me. Every once in a while, you know, depending if things were slow or things, I was really looking for, you know, interesting projects or things like that. And to meet also new people, right? Mm -hmm. New, fresh talent. Um, I had, uh, you know, I, I do regularly still. I'll go to Kickstarter. I'll go to Indiegogo. I will go to some of the other platforms and really look at what other people are doing, some of their trailers, things of that sort. You know, looking to see, you know, is this somebody in the quality of their work I, I would want to use later, you know, for some, some of my projects, do I, do I think that the level of work is really great? And, and does that person need the kind of help that maybe could make, whether it be a short film, you know, a trailer or documentary, take it to the next level where they could actually get it done. Mm -hmm. So Obviously, that's where I met Brandon, and I had I had seen actually I had seen one post and I saw the trailer and I thought to myself, okay, this guy knows how to shoot. I mean, this guy this guy knows how to shoot. It, there's no question about it, and 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 it was thoughtful and it had a beginning, middle, end because it's amazing how many people who do a trailer. It's like what was it doesn't say anything about the film. Like what is this? Um, and so I, I think it's really 
it's one of those things that I also think you have to put yourself out there too. And what I mean by that is I think there's so much talent out there and people wanting to either be discovered or get help um, financially that it really, it really, for me, I have met some extraordinarily, extraordinary young talent like you that I'm, I'm so grateful that, you know, I took the time and it does take time. You have to go through mm -hmm. it. You kind of know, ah, oh, this project, forget it. I mean, there are some projects I see on there and it's the most horrendous, <laughs> grotesque, like <laughs> stupid stuff, you know, and it's like, you know, they've raised a hundred thousand pounds or something. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, and, and those are great for those markets and whether it ever gets filmed, you know, filmed or not, who knows, or shot, I don't know. But for me, it was really important because I really thought you had, um, I thought Saved by Grace had a great theme. Um, it was a beautiful story. Um, you know, stories about World War II, you always see about every two or three years or other stories and major films being made, but that's because there have such, I mean, like even I'm sure during this time now, you will have extraordinary stories coming out Mm -hmm. of extraordinary times and, and obviously war films and world war ii is one of them you know every once in a while oh it's another world war ii film. no but it's a different story it's a different angle it's from a different perspective so i thought the film was and the concept for saved by grace was very straightforward very enduring and i thought technically it could be something really interesting uh to get done and um and and really see what happened on the festival circuit to be very honest um, and I'm, I'm really happy. I mean, obviously, Brandon was one of those um, DPs that just decided, oh, we're, yeah, we're not just going to make a short film. We're just going to throw every possible challenge that you could possibly imagine that you ever want to do in a short film. Like you have a train, there's a parachuter that has to drop from the sky. You know, we have to do a historical period piece. So guess what? That means the cars, that means the wardrobe, that means everything has to be period. Mm -hmm. uh, thinking, you know, if this guy can pull this off and he needs just a, this much money to do it, I was like, that's that's great. If you can pull <laughs> this off, I, that's gonna be great. So yeah, we, we, we I was able to bring in uh, Ron Hutchinson. Um, he has an amazing resume, he's a stunt coordinator, he's, you know, he's done most of the Halloween franchise, other things. And, you know, it was fun for him. And I think he really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, I, I, um, I, I really, I respect for Brandon for being so ambitious because this was such an ambitious project for four days of show. It was what, ended up four days of filming or five? Uh, it was three. Four, it was five. actually three days. Three. Okay. So, yeah. So this is, we have all this going on. And, and so, you know, I, for me, it was really great because then Brandon got to, uh, was able to be with us on King of K Street and we'll continue. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. We've had such we've had such an amazing journey with with this piece, and I'm I'm anxious for for the time to become, which I think will be sooner than later, because actually uh, our agents and managers have decided to wait until after next week to start again pitching it. <laughs> <laughs> I was told that things are on hold, timeout, but there's a plan of action after in the in the middle of November. So I said, fine, you know, I, I leave it to to them as to know when the timing is right. And um, I, I don't purport to know that with mm -hmm. the executives are thinking and all of these things. So that that for me is very exciting. But yeah, I, I, I think Indiegogo also you can really network to meet some really amazing people to, you know, to do creative projects with and and um, you know, for for me, this was really it was really special, and and it'll be a relationship that will be going on for for hopefully many many years, and we'll be able to um, continue to do great stuff. And uh, 
despite all the challenges. For sure. I'm excited for our future and I'm extremely grateful for the opportunities that you gave me with Say by Grace and King K Street. So I guess, Maddie, we'll just have a couple more questions and then we'll let you go. Yeah. What advice do you give to young filmmakers wanting to make it into the industry? Take whatever job is offered to you. <laughs> I say that, I say that obviously with a grain of salt, but I say that because so many times you have a chance meeting with somebody that you never would have expected. Mm-hmm. And I, I say that because if you, if you look at Tom Hanks story, he was getting coffee with somebody who was there for no other reason, but like that, and he just happened to show up on the set and, you know, and things kind of started clicking Timing is everything. We can't always predict when that time is going to be, but the more opportunities you give yourself to expose yourself to different people in the business, you know, whether that, I don't care if that's a makeup artist. I don't care if that's a a sound mixer. I don't care who that is because at the end of the day, you will be able to say, oh yeah, I met so-and-so. Oh yeah. I, you know, I met this guy. He was doing, you know, he was doing grip. Yeah. He was really nice. So sometimes it may be you're not going to do the job that that's what your dream job you want to do. So it may be times where, and I tell people this, you're not doing camera. You're not even second AC, but maybe you're the production assistant. Great. Like, like if, if you have time and you put yourself out there, um, you know, volunteer to do it, try to do it if, if you can, because um, you just never know who you're going to meet. It's, it's really, it's a quirky industry. And um, at any given moment, you can meet somebody that completely changes your career. So, and sometimes, you know, you also, you know, even though if there may be smaller productions, you learn something. I mean, I think for me, what what's great every time we work is I always, I, I always do learn something and I say, ah, you know what, I wouldn't have done it that way the next time. Or, you know, yeah, let me, let me think about this again, because I've had that experience and I've seen that happen. It doesn't work. So you know, I, I think the more you put yourself out there, and I think particularly now remotely, um, which is more difficult because you don't get to meet and network the way you usually do. Um, I think that, you know, places like Slated are really important for networking, you know, LinkedIn, Indeed, but certainly the production sites and things of that sort. And really doing podcasts like you're doing it because mm-hmm. you never know. Somebody's going to see you and say, oh, I heard he was a DP and he did this and this and that. Or I heard he did balance or he did this and that. It's very important to do that, especially now because we live in very unpredictable times. And then my last question for you, Maddie, is what are your top three favorite movies? They're going to be all foreign language. <laughs> That's okay. Awesome. No, actually, they're not actually. So um, I love the film Indochine with Catherine Deneuve. Mm-hmm. I think it's a classic movie with a, an incredible story and, and cinematography. One of my favorites. Well, also one of my favorites, which was quite controversial and going to be a little bit older. So everybody's going to be like, oh, yeah, she's really old. But anyway, <laughs> there's a reason why, because you see these and you think, oh, this is amazing filmmaking, because they still stand the test of time now for me and for the acting was the unbearable lightness of being with Daniel Day-Lewis. Mm. Oh, heck yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis. And, and, and the third, actually, I've rewatched this now in the last year three times because one was because of the cinematography the directing because of this guy actually this director who's now now obviously now no longer with us a lot of people in the union didn't let him get credit for his cinematography because he did most of the handheld stuff for his own work and that is the film barry linden i love barry linden so (laughs) much i love it (laughs) storytelling in terms of the way this guy like the dual scene 
I will put that scene up against any great scene in any film from the beginning of film till now. It is the most extraordinarily directed thing. And Kubrick did a lot of his own handwork. Mm. Wow, and, I didn't and know that. And, and I, actually, they wouldn't let him get credit for a lot of that. But I, I have gone back to to watch a lot of Kubrick recently, and um, so so those would be my three. That's awesome. Cool. Really good taste. I am so impressed. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Maddie, for your time. And thank you. Uh, where could people find you if they want to reach out or something? Well, not on Facebook right now because I'm not doing anything <laughs> on King of Main Street because of what happened in February. <laughs> so, yeah. so I'm obviously I'm uh, I'm on IMDb and um, and I'm on I'm on LinkedIn. So people can Sweet. find me, send me a message, whatever. We'll be sure to link everything below. All right, sounds good. Love it. Well, listen, stay well and stay safe. Thank you for having you me. Too, Thank, Thank you. It was a pleasure. Nice you. Thank you so Take much. Care. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Thanks again for listening to another episode of This Industry Life. Appreciate it, guys. It's, just, it's been great. <laughs> thank you, thank you. If you like what we're doing, please give us five stars and rate us, review us, share us, uh, follow Scold us on Instagram. Us. Scold <laughs> us if you must, but give us five stars at the same time. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. Ciao.